Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Hope Unlimited Church podcast. We're honored that you're here, and we pray that you find this message both encouraging and inspiring. Bible real quick, let's, let's uh, look at just a couple of passages. Nobody turns, nobody brings their Bible anymore. It's fine. John chapter 1, um, that's where I'm going to go. You can go wherever you want. I'm going to go to John chapter 1. Um, and this isn't going to be so much me preaching a sermon. I want to, I want to, I want to disrupt everything you think about reality. <laughs> That's my goal. Um, I want to. I want your way of life to feel threatened at every turn. Okay, and I don't have a lot of time, so we got to cut to the chase. But in order to do that, I've got to shape a particular way of thinking in you. This is the way we are called to think. As Christians, to think Christianly means to think this way. I'm going to be using uh, a couple of quotes from a phenomenal uh, figure in Christian history by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I don't have time to give you all of Diedrich Bonhoeffer's information. Some of you are familiar with him. Some of you are not. Famous German pastor, famous German theologian. He was a part of the resistance against Hitler during World War II. He ends up getting arrested by the Nazi police and dies a martyr. They hang him in a concentration camp in Germany two weeks to the day before the U.S. went and liberated that camp. He was 39 years old. He was never married. And Bonhoeffer was obsessed with Jesus. He was consumed by Jesus. But when I say obsessed and consumed with Jesus... I don't just mean devotionally, although I do mean that too. He was certainly had a burning, passionate heart for Jesus. But beyond the devotional life given to Jesus, he was obsessed with what Jesus meant theologically. And Bonhoeffer goes to great lengths to help shape our thinking in this particular way. And so I'm going to take my time. I'm not going to keep you here long, but I'm going to go through this uh, at a slower pace than usual because I want to make sure this gets down in your bones. Can we do that? All right. Now, I'm going to introduce you for... This is so exciting. I just write on it. Now that, it even feels like a chalkboard. That does not say Logos. This is a word that me that is pronounced this way, lagos. Everybody say lagos. If we're writing in, in Greek, lagos. Now, when the New Testament is written, the New Testament is written, everybody knows, in the Greek language originally. It was written in the Greek language because the entire world had become Greekified. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's where the great conquest of Alexander the Great happened. He comes in, overthrows the Persian Empire, and everything becomes Greekified, down to the very language that people spoke. 
This is where Greece rises to power. Now, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, Rome is in power. They've defeated the Greek empire, but the culture is still Greekified. So when you get into the New Testament, the New Testament writers are always engaging with Greek philosophical ideas and reimagining them. For example, there was a, a, a brilliant theological idea posited by Aristotle who said that the greatest virtues that one could attain to is truth, goodness, and beauty. And the New Testament comes along and says truth, goodness, and beauty are just other names for God. That God is the true, he is the good, he is the beautiful. You follow me? There was another idea that was that was saturating saturated the culture and this idea was the idea of the logos the the word logos is where we get our word logic and what in the greek speaking world what logos meant you have to hang in here with me i promise you if you hang in here with me Dietrich Bonhoeffer in just a moment is going to rattle your cage okay in the Greek-speaking world, logos meant a particular thing. The logos was this. It was the guiding principle by which all of reality functioned. It was the guiding principle. It was, I'm going to make two distinctions here. I need one of these boards. I need just one of these boards at my house. It was the guiding principle by which life was governed. And you'll see even in our own lives, we develop all sorts of personal lagos, or the plural is logi. We, we, we develop all sorts of personal lagos by which we govern our life. Okay? For example, you talk to most people, they will just want to be, they're aiming to be a good person. Just being a good person is a guiding principle. In American culture, a guiding principle is freedom. Yes? Individuality. Uh, personal truth. If you get on social media, there's all kinds of other logos that people believe is the highest governing principle of their life. Mercy, compassion, or justice, and truth. And this even goes down to things like mental health, physical health. As you can tell, that's a guiding principle of my life. And we have all of these different logos by which we govern our life. Or I just want to be happy. Or I just want to be kind. I just want to be a truth teller. I just want to be compassionate. If you ever notice in American politics... All American politics is one human logos debating the other human logos as to which is the most important. This is why we can never make any headway. Because one party claims to be the party of compassion and the other party claims to be the party of personal responsibility. And they're each fighting over which logos should be the most preeminent. 
You follow me? Uh, what's another one? Human rights. A very important one here. Money. Where our entire life is about being a good provider for our family. And that's a guiding principle by which all of our life is governed. And depending on your personality or how you were raised, if you were raised poor, money becomes a huge issue to you. Or if you were raised in an austere environment, mercy becomes a huge issue to you. Or if you have a strong sense of personal responsibility, truth and justice is a huge issue to you. Not only is it a huge issue, it is the biggest issue in the world to you. And everything else is subservient to that. The most mature people are able to handle one or more human logos in tension with one another. You need to be truthful and a little compassionate, but truthful and a little compassionate. And then we think that's being balanced. You with me? We've not got to the good stuff yet. I promise you, after we're done, I want this to be an existential threat to your life. Okay? What's another one? Love. Love. We just need to be loving. This is what we say in the church. Although we speak about these terms in complete abstractions. What it means to be loving. We don't know, but we want to be that. Or if you grew up in the church I grew up in, holiness. Was it? You did not have to be kind. We did not think kindness was a part of being holy. The more holy you were, the more judgmental and mean-spirited you were. It went with the territory. Right? And so this is what the New Testament, this is the world. I mean, this is our modern world. But in the New Testament, they had their own logos, human logos, that they were writing into. And then John... The evangelist writes something absolutely staggering in his gospel. Charlie, throw those scriptures up there for me. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, we are trained in our churches that whenever we read in the Bible, whenever we read the phrase, the Word of God, we think it means the Bible. But it does not mean the Bible. The Bible does not reference itself. Paul did not have in view a 27-volume work that was going to be compiled 400 years later that we would all read and call that the Word of God. The Bible is God's Word to us, yes. But it is the Word in that it leads us to the Word. Jesus is the Word of God. All right? So when you read the Scriptures and it talks about the Word of God, the Bible never references itself. The New Testament never references itself. When you read the Word of God, they are bearing witness to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. Do you know what the Greek word is for word here? Lagos. The entire line in Greek. In ain ha lagos. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the lagos. And the Lagos was with God. And the Lagos was God. Now imagine what readers in the ancient world, imagine what's happening to their minds when they hear this. 
We have spent our life debating over what is the guiding principle of all human reality. What is this logos that we track all the way back in Genesis that pulled order out of chaos? What is this? And John says it's not a principle. It is a person. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then John takes this even deeper in verse 14. And he says this. And the Logos was made flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Throw verse 14 up there for me, Charlie. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's saying so much in just a couple of lines. He is identifying what this guiding principle of all reality is and it's not a principle at all it is a person and not only is it is it a person it is a person that came to dwell among us and not only is it a person that came to dwell among us it is a person that we kill you with me so this is why Bonhoeffer would was obsessed with Jesus now, Bonhoeffer is going to introduce a word here that I want you to wrap your minds around. It's not difficult. You got this. Say, I got this. The word is, and if you've been paying attention to Pastor Cole's teachings at all, this will make sense. The word is Christology. The word Christology means, wait for it, the study of Christ. The study of the person and the work of Christ. You with me? Now, can I... You're not ready for Bonhoeffer. I've read this a hundred times. I'm still not ready for Bonhoeffer, but I'm giving you Bonhoeffer. Are you ready? No, you're not. Don't say yes. No, you're not. Are you ready? No. Good. Just as long as you know. Throw that up there for me, Charlie. If, you can't, if you're on this side, I'm sorry. Just listen very, very carefully. Christology... I'm trying to see if I can read it that far, but I'm 40 now, so I can't. Christology is doctrine. It is speaking. Christology is the word about the word of God. Are you with me? Are you with me? We're going to go slow. Christology is the word about the word of God. Christ is the logos of God. Christology is logology. Watch this. It is knowledge par excellence. Now listen to what he's saying here. That the person of Jesus, who he is as a person, that is the ground of all reality. Jesus... I heard somebody say this the other day. They said, Solomon's not the wisest man that ever lived. Jesus is. Jesus is not the wisest man that ever lived. Wisdom is not something that exists out there and Jesus just had more of it. Jesus is not the wisest man that ever lived. Jesus is wisdom. You with me? Jesus is not the most righteous man that ever lived. Jesus is righteousness. 
Jesus was not the most holy man that ever lived. Jesus is the holiness of God. Paul even calls him our sanctification. Jesus was not the most powerful man to ever walk the planet. Jesus is the power of God. Everything that we think about reality has to be grounded in the logos of God. It has to be grounded in the person of Jesus. And whatever we think about reality that is outside of that is false. Give an example. When we really are confronted with the teachings of Jesus, I've heard this a thousand times in church. When we are really confronted with Jesus' demands, Jesus is not practical at all. There is no application. Bonhoeffer makes it clear, Jesus is not a person that we run to to mine some principles and gain some techniques for living a better life. That is not what Jesus is. He's not a source of good principles. I saw a book the other day, somebody sent me, it said, Leadership Lessons from the Greatest Leader That Ever Lived. 31 Wisdom Keys from the Leadership of Jesus. Jesus is not a principle that we mine some things from that fit our personality. When we are confronted with the teachings of Jesus, they are not practical. They do not work. They are not useful. And so when we are confronted with Jesus and his reality, what do we say? Well, I live in the real world. You've got to be realistic. And any world that we name outside of the world as Jesus defines it, is a false world to begin with. What we call real is false if it's not rooted and grounded in him. Are y'all with me? This gets way, I'm telling you, way worse. Christology is knowledge par excellence, meaning you can't know anything truly if it is not known and named in the person of Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? You don't know what it means to be human. Jesus was the perfect human. He was the true human. And anything that we call our humanity that was not in Jesus' humanity is a false representation of what it means to be human. I hear this all the time, especially in, amongst Bible college students. I sin because I'm human. Sin is not human. Sin is not a part of your human equipment. Sin actually is dehumanizing. Sin works against your humanity. Because what it means to be human is defined in its relation to Jesus. Are you with me? Sin is defined in relation to Jesus. Sin is not the breaking of some moral code. That we developed because we live in the south. And if you drive up three states north, they have a very different moral code. Sin is defined in its relation to Jesus. Scripture speaks much more exacting about sin than we do. We talk about sin, about all the things you shouldn't watch and places you shouldn't go. And that is not how Scripture speaks about sin. Our greatest sins 
are not the moral codes we break. The greatest sins that we commit is all of the good that we refuse to do. This is what James meant when he said to him that knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. And I could rant on that for the next four hours. You can just ask the guys that were up here with me. Christology is knowledge par excellence. You with me? You're not, but it's okay. From outside, Christology, thank you for fixing that. Christology becomes the center of knowledge. The logos we are talking about here is a person, and this human person is transcendent. What we think reality is, it must be grounded in the person of Jesus, or it is false. And all of our life, all of our human logos has been shaped by a thousand different influences, except Jesus. What we think about everything, for the most part, has been defined a thousand different ways except Jesus. And then we have the nerve to call that the real world. You with me? All right, now flip over that second quote. I, I look at some of y'all's face, y'all like, <clears throat> I'm not sure where we're at, what we're going. I'm trying to figure out what a logos is. You're doing fine. This means two things. First, that wherever the idea of the Logos is to be considered, is considered to be its ultimate reality, there can be no true understanding of the central character of Christology. What is he saying there? He's saying whenever you have a center for your knowledge that's other than Christ, then you will never be able to even know Christ right Whenever there is a guiding principle of your life that you make judgments by, that you make decisions based upon, your worldview, your political leanings, your core values, whenever that is the central in your life and it's defined by something else but Jesus, then you and I will never be able to even know Jesus faithfully. And then he adds to this. Second, that Christology, flip that over, Christology with its claim to be the center of the sphere of knowledge stands alone. If you have a central knowledge that's not rooted in Christ, then you will never know Christ. But if you accept that Christ alone is the center, then he must stand alone. Meaning you must have either Christ or the world as it is. But you cannot have both at the same time. And the world as it is, we call the real world. And that is not. That is a false, fallen representation of the original intention of God. So we will either have Christ or we will have the world as it is. And there are plenty of principles that you, can, that you can take from all sorts of spheres to make the world as it is as comfortable and as convenient as you possibly can make it. Yeah. 
You can make as much money as you want. You can do whatever you want. You can have as many relationships as you want. You can go to church however you want. You can, do, you can treat others however you want. But we'll never know Jesus faithfully. Because if we accept Jesus' claim as the center of knowledge, then he stands all by himself. All right? Can I go further? Is this all right, Cole? Cole told me to set it off. I've not got to the set it off part yet, but we're going to get there shortly. Throw that other quote up there for me. I've got 12 minutes. Hurry, Charlie. Hurry, hurry, hurry. No, I'm just kidding. So Bonhoeffer's going to introduce something here. He's got the human logos, right, that we all think we have the right one. And so you talk about it on social media, and you trumpet your human logos because you have been enlightened beyond all the other uncircumcised Philistines on Facebook barbarians, uncultured swine, every one of them, except you and your followers. <laughs> but what happens, now Bonhoeffer's going to introduce another idea. This is the human logos. Bonhoeffer calls this the counter logos. This is what he means when he says the counterlogos, he means Jesus as person. Okay. What happens if the counterlogos suddenly presents its demand in a wholly new form? So that it is no longer an idea or a word that is turned against the autonomy of the human logos. But rather, flip it over Charlie, come on. Let's go. There we go. But rather, the counter logos appears somewhere and at some time in history as a human being. And as a human being, it sets itself up as judge over the human logos. And it says, I am the truth. So whatever these things are for us, these are informing your lifestyle. These are informing your economics. These are informing your politics. And all you're doing is debating back and forth all of this. And Bonhoeffer says, but the counterlogos comes and judges all of this. And says, I'm the truth. I don't have a truth. I'm not the possessor of a truth. I am the truth. I am the way. And you see this all the time. Whenever something happens in society, people run to Jesus to pull out excerpts from his life to reinforce what they think. I remember when January 6th happened and the Capitol was raided. You know how many people I saw post about Jesus making a whip and driving out the money changers? Because that was the same thing? That's perverse. And then when the student debt thing came along, everybody runs to Jesus to use him as a principal, to champion your core values that are not centered in this at all, but this. 
This gets worse. Bonhoeffer isn't done. <laughs> hope I made everybody mad. Whatever side you're on, I hope I made all of you mad. Because Bonhoeffer's saying none of us know what we're talking about. And how dare you be arrogant in thinking that you do. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to run and find a verse from the life of Jesus to prop up whatever you've decided you want to think. All you need is basic, fundamental, middle school reading comprehension. And it is evident, a good swath of society doesn't have that. Swath, you like that? You like that, Blake? The counter-logos sets himself up over against the human logos in judgment and says, I'm the truth. Watch, I am the death of the human logos. I am the life of God's logos. I am the alpha and omega. Now watch this next line. If we are going to follow Jesus faithfully, you can either be a political pundit or you can be a Christian. But you can't be both. You can either be liberal and conservative or a Christian. But you can't be both. You can either be woke or traditionalist or you can be a Christian. But you can't be both. And when we try to fit Jesus into any of that. I'm, I'll, I'll show you what happens in just a second. Or Bonhoeffer's going to show you. Human beings are those. Who must die and fall with their logos into my hands. Human beings are those who must die and must fall with their logos. Whatever you think this is. Those who must die and must fall into my hands. Here it is no longer possible to fit the word made flesh into the Logos classification system. When we try to categorize and compartmentalize life, well, he's a this and she's a that, and they believe this, and well, they believe that. Bonhoeffer says the Logos of God has nothing to do with those categories and classifications because he is not a principle. He is a person. He's not a principle that you leverage. He is a person that you are called to be shaped into. Into his likeness. And when you use him as principle to get your point across, that's how much unlike him we are. You with me? Here all that remains is the question, who are you? This, I, don't, I don't mean to pick on this, but I'm going to. This is why the what would Jesus do campaign was so misguided. Because when we ask that, what are we asking? What would Jesus do? We're asking for a principle to make a judgment according to. What would Jesus do? And Bonhoeffer says the question is not what. The question is who are you? And now let me be shaped into that. Let me be formed into that. So whatever you think the real world is, unless he is the center of that knowledge and you are being shaped into him, your ability to discern what is real and false is fallen anyway. This is what, this is what 
and, and Bonhoeffer says this in another book. This is what the scriptures mean when it talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve did not sin because they ate of the tree of good and evil. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Meaning, when we, when, we, when we desire knowledge for good and evil, that's where sin starts. We are not even able to make moral discernments because we are fallen. We are not called to discern between good and evil. We are called to become like Jesus. The highest call of the Christian life is not for you to be sinless, although you need to live a life free from sin. The call of the Christian life is to be like Christ. Are you with me? Let me give you one more point. Jake? If you can recover from the ribbing I gave you earlier. Bonhoeffer goes on to say this, and I'll leave you with this. Is everybody okay? Now, I've been preaching this to 18-year-olds that just graduated high school. So they're having a really hard time figuring out what life's about. Yeah, throw that quote up there, Charlie. This is the quote. So... Bonhoeffer says that the only question we can ask now is, who are you? This is the question asked by horrified, dethroned human reason. And also the question of faith, who are you? Every possibility of classification must fall short. Jesus does not fit into your leanings. He does not fit into your core values. He does not fit into you what you he does not fit into what you think is the most important in the world. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus says, "Why do you call me good? There's only one good but God. I'm even challenging your categories of good and evil." He does not fit into your leanings. He does not fit into your perspectives. And when we try to use him as that, it shows how much we do not know about him and it shows how much unlike him we actually are. The only question that remains is, who are you? Because the existence of this Logos means the end of my Logos. He is the Logos. He is the counter word. He is the counter word. And then Bonhoeffer goes on to say this later on. He said, whenever we are confronted with Jesus, our first question is not, who are you? Our first question is, how? How do you fit into life as I've already defined it? How can I make you work for me? How can I use you to get what I want done done we don't ask who we ask how and Bonhoeffer goes on to say this when we ask how and we are confronted with who then the how responds by crucifying the who just like we've always done the reason Jesus was crucified is because he did not fit into their way of life. He stands before Pilate. And this is a point Bonhoeffer makes. When we ask, how do you fit in my life? Just like Jesus standing before Pilate, the Logos remains silent. 
not trying to fit into your life. Not trying to fit into your political leanings. Not trying to fit into your theories about the world. And you can use all the Bible you want. Part of our human logos is what we think the Bible says. We, 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 we swear to high heaven that we are people of the Bible, people of the scriptures, people of the word. But he is superior to that. That is only important in that it leads us to the counter word. You hear what I'm saying? He doesn't fit into your categories or in mine. He supersedes them all and he judges them all. So the only question we are left with, if we're going to follow Jesus, is who are you? I've got to know you and I've got to be made like you. Stand on your feet. we thank you you are the counter word you stand over against our reasoning and you judge it and as humans we must fall with our logos into your hands and die there this is our quest this is our question this morning who are you? Our question is, who are you? And our prayer is, make us like that. Who are you? And make us like you. We crucify our how questions. How can I fit you into my thinking? How can I fit you into my worldview? How can I fit you into my politics? We crucify that. And instead we ask, who are you? Make us like you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen.